CliffCentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Steady Show Lumbus, on the Daily Maverick Show. It's just gone 1 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm joined in studio by Simon Ellison, a senior reporter at the Daily Maverick, and our first thing editor, John Stupart. Welcome. John, your first visit to the studio, yeah. first uh, attendance on the show. Yeah, it's uh, quite quite cool to be here. Quite nice to see the Cliff Central studio as well. Very, very interesting. Cool. I feel like I've got the brains trust of first thing newsletter here. Um, you know, both guys having served time, I think, is probably the best analogy yeah, we can use. That sums it up. Yeah. Um, you know, although, Simon, uh, your time was slightly different, I believe, you know, well, it was at the end of your reign, um, you know, uh, in your robe drinking mojitos in Hong Kong, <laughs> pushing it out in the afternoon as opposed to the, the morning grind session. You know, you know who really did it well, actually, was Simon Williamson. He was the editor before me. And um, I, I visited him once in New York, which is where he used to do it from. And, and he had to you know, send it through at about it was 10 or 11 p.m. New York time. And he'd sit there with a bottle of wine and start the thing. And by the time he'd finished, the bottle of wine was also finished. That's fantastic. Um, but you know what? It kind of worked. Uh, oh, it's, it's that Hemingway adage of, you know, write drunk and edit sober, you know, which exactly. is what a proofread is for, really, at the end of the day. Well, yeah, if you speak to Richard Poblack, he'll tell you that uh, the Hannibal Lecter series especially was uh, a whole lot of credit has to go to Mr. Glenn Fiddich uh, uh, yes. for, for, for helping him through that. Um, but uh, if you're not familiar with the first thing newsletter that uh, goes out under the Daily Maverick brand in the mornings, uh, you might also get it as part of the Cliff Central Daily Dose. Get syndicated to the Cliff Central audience every morning as well. And uh, the person pretty much responsible for that is, is John. And, um, yep. John, tell, you know, without this being a big PR piece for the, for the newsletter, which is quite <laughs> special and, and quite close to my heart. Incredibly having, special. Having given birth to it a couple of times myself. <laughs> um, tell us about the, you know, the, what goes into putting that beast together every day. It's actually, it requires a fair amount of, of concentration, especially, I mean, obviously now I'm in South Africa, so you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning, somewhat blurry eyed, looking at the news and then trying to figure out what's, uh, uh, what's important, what hasn't been done yesterday, you know, before, before anyone goes to bed. And, uh, and this is after a whole lot of prep work's been done the night before. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, things like, you know, trying to get the weather sorted and, you know, just basic, um, sort of info set up. Um, trying to find witty quotes is a constant challenge as well as, I mean, obviously the fact of the day is quite, uh, quite difficult. But then obviously in, in the morning, um, it's quite tough sometimes because sometimes you'd be surprised how, how little, uh, there is newsworthy, uh, uh, over the course of an evening as you, you know, as the rest of, as the rest of South Africa, as the rest of the readers sleep. To try and pick things that are newsworthy that, that don't involve death, destruction and some kind of suicide bomb. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, there's just, plenty of that, right? <laughs> there's, there's no shortage of that. It's, I mean, Islamic states as you know, I suppose we'll see in a bit. It's, there's, there's no shortage of that. I mean, there's some of the most depressing mornings I've had. You know, you have a beheading of a journalist and there's a bombing here and there's a strike here. And then a plane crash over mm. here and a volcano blows up somewhere else. Mm. But don't forget um, to be funny though, John. But it's got to be funny, yeah. Although <laughs> <laughs> suicide bombings are just a general. Can be depressing, but above everything, make sure it's funny. <laughs> yeah, so, so take us through. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, there's the quote. We start with the quotes and then a roundup of things that happened while you were sleeping. Um, yes. Some financial indicators. It, it, it's become quite a big publication, Simon, from the time you took it over, mm. um, from Simon Williamson days. It's, it's grown into, you know, a bit of a bit of a beast. It it is. I mean, what's the current readership figures, Dilly? Um, so I think when when you took it over, 
Uh, it was sitting at around 11,000, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and we managed to grow that quite nicely. And we would have this sort of 25% jump year on year. And we'd mm. get excited about that. So it's now sitting at uh, 27,000 at the Daily Maverick. Uh, just, just on the Daily Maverick. Just on the Daily Maverick. Maverick. Meant, and then yeah. syndicated to another 40,000 Cliff Central listeners. It's mm. one of those things that, that it grows exponentially, doesn't it? Yeah, the momentum. It's very much a word of mouth publication. I think people tell their friends yeah. to sign up. Um, and the more people that are reading it, the more people are spreading that word. Mm. And it's, it's not just an algorithmically produced, um, you know, action script that runs at a particular yeah. time in the morning. It's something that. Yeah, it's not a harvester of news. It's, uh, unless you count me as the harvester. <laughs> well, I must admit, uh, on those, on those figures, I was a little disconcerted in July, sort of, um, you know, as I started learning how to do the first thing, you know, you start seeing that. The, the number of subscribers slowly dwindling, and you think, "Oh God, what's going wrong? What have I done?" But now I'm happy to report we're back up to, you know, pre pre John Stupart levels, which is good. So uh, one of the things that we do is we include a a fact of the day, and we've extended that to the radio show. Um, and uh, today we've got a fact that we've kind of struggled to put into written word, um, and uh, and you'll you'll see why, you know, once we start talking about it. So it's probably gone down as the strangest football game in the history of football. Uh, it was a 1994 Caribbean Cup qualification game. Uh, the background to the story is that Barbados um, were trailing Grenada by one goal point difference uh, in, in the sort of qualification round. And they needed to win, obviously, by two points uh, on goal difference to, to get through. And they were leading 2-0 in normal time. And Granada scored a goal, and the score went to 2-1, which meant if the game ended as it was, Granada would go through on, on points difference. So Barbados quickly realized that if they scored an own goal, the game would go to extra time. And in extra time, under these rules, if a golden goal is scored, it counts as two points. So what happened was <laughs> Barbados scored an happens. own goal. The score went to 2 all with about five minutes left to play. But now, Granada realized what was going on, and they realized if they scored either an own goal or goal, <laughs> then there would be no extra time, and Barbados wouldn't have the opportunity to try and get the golden goal, which would count as two points. So you had the situation where for the last five minutes of this game, in normal time, Granada were trying to score an own goal as well as a goal. And Barbados were defending both sets of goals trying to prevent the own goal and the goal from occurring, which they did. And wow. the game went into extra time. Barbados scored the goal, uh, the golden goal, to get the two points and went ahead in the qualifying game ahead of Granada. That is fantastic. I'm not quite sure what that says about Granada's striking ability <laughs> in, the, in the dying minutes of the game. <laughs> they couldn't score an own goal. <laughs> anyway, it's, it, so it goes down in history as one of the weirdest football, uh, football matches, and you can probably see why we haven't been able to put this mm. into written word. Well, in anything, you know, under two pages long. You know, people would describe that as unsportsmanlike. But I gotta disagree. I think if you know the rules and you, you know. It's strategic. It's strategic. Yeah. It's clever to, to know, to, to, to bend the rules to your favor. I, you know, you gotta play according to the set of rules. It's the only thing you can do. Well, it's like Absolutely. that, uh, that, that famous, uh, cricket game, Australia versus New Zealand, where New Zealand needed a six off the last ball and, um, Oh, who was it? One of the famous Australian bowlers bowled it underhand because you can't hit it. You'd be rolled it along the ground to the New Zealand <laughs> batsman, and you can't hit that for six. 
uh, and <laughs> has gone down as one of the un, most unsportsmanlike, douchiest cricket to, ever, to ever, do. ever. And you know, and probably added to the Australians, uh, sorry, the perception of most Australians <laughs> after that, or the dislike of, uh, <laughs> especially on the sports field. So, um, okay, moving on to the real news. Uh, Simon, the Mo Ibrahim uh, Foundation Index was released, uh, when was it, on Monday? Yes. Uh, you used to do some work at the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. I did. You? I worked, I did two, two and a half years at the Mo Ibrahim Foundation in their communications department. I, I, I enjoy the foundation, but I hated communications, I have to say. Um, it really doesn't matter what <laughs> you're you selling. Are you aware of the irony? Of this, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, well, there's it, corporate it's, communications. It's, and there's two sides communication. of the fence because, because yeah, corporate communications, whether you're selling African governance or, you know, bauxite, it's the same thing. Um, you, you really are doing exactly the same things, using the same strategies. Um, it's just spinning, uh, just spinning a different spinning flavor a different of bullshit. Way. And I don't like spinning things. I like to be able to say things the way I want to say things and, and, you know, rather than spin things, just call out other people's spin. That's far more enjoyable. (laughs) So, uh, it it didn't last long, but it did give me my, my enduring love of all things African and political. Um, so it did pay off. But now this index is interesting. And it's actually the the European Foundation does two things. They give this, this prize for presidents, um, huge cash money every year. Well, if well, when can, it's awarded, if right? they can find a president, yeah. but they often struggle. But actually, that's not really what uh, Mo Ibrahim himself cares about. He, the prize is kind of a, a side thing. The, his real passion is this index, and it's it's a collection of sort of ninety thousand data points. They, they get statistics from every African country except Sudan and South Sudan because they now split, which is completely messed with all the data. So they've left those out for the last couple of iterations. But they collect all this data, and then they sort of crunch it for us. They put it into their algorithms, and it it spits out these rankings um, across different categories and, of course, an overall ranking, looking at how well is your country governed? Where does it fit into the rest of Africa in terms of governance? And then the subcategories are things like rule of law, safety, uh, human rights, sustainable economic opportunity, those kinds of things. Um, so, look, it's a, it's a very imperfect tool, partly because data in Africa is immensely flawed. A lot of it doesn't exist. A lot of it has just been carried over year on year. So you're looking at some of the poverty statistics um, that, that are used to make decisions today actually come from 1993 and haven't been updated since then. It's mm. quite horrendous. But, so it's, it's a kind of like Nigeria's uh, and GDP, exactly. right? Well, this is a perfect example. The GDP can, can suddenly jump, what is it, 40% overnight because the data hasn't been looked at properly. It hasn't been collected properly. Um, and that's, that's GDP. That's probably the most single most mm. important statistic that a country has um, in terms of, you know... Possibly one of the easiest ones to collect as well. You would think Relatively so. speaking. Relatively, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and so if, if GDP can, can vary by as much as 40% in somewhere like Nigeria, when Nigeria, you know, it, it is relatively... It's the biggest economy on. in it's, Africa. It's the biggest economy in Africa. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of interest. So what about these other statistics like, you know, um, literacy rates, education rates? Governments, bear in mind, governments are not incentivized mm-hmm. to monitor their own poor progress in any of those things. Um, and some of these are, are less qualitative in nature as well, which probably makes them harder to collect. Well, this is another problem. Is So I can't remember the exact ratio, but a good, decent proportion of the data is based on survey data, it's called, yeah. which is pretty common. Um, but the problem is who's doing the survey data? And it's not we're not talking survey data going out in the streets and asking a selection of people in Nigeria what they think of their government. We're talking some guy sitting in the economic, the Economist Intelligence Unit's um, office and I think it's in Brussels or somewhere 
Um, he is the sort of so-called, air quotes, expert on Africa. And then he assigns a number. You know, I think uh, I think human rights in Burkina Faso is a seven this year. <laughs> Um, because, you know, I read two reports that said they beat up protesters. That's, that's pretty much the level yeah, of the Yeah, all my bonuses are linked data. to this number. Let me, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I deserve a seven. And it also gets compounded as well where that expert in Brussels will sit there and say, I've done this for five years based on a flawed model that I've been given when I mm-hmm. arrived. Mm-hmm. And now while I see there's a, you know, seven point change or something like that over since last year. Your base so, might be so far away. Exactly. I mean, the, rubbish number exactly. Anyway. So, so yes, we've got, to, we've got to bear in mind these statistics are problematic. But having said that, and given the sort of volume of the stuff they collect, you do get a sort of approximate picture. And it's, it's interesting. It is interesting. South Africa comes in at number four. Um, so we're in, ter- not- in terms of the, the best governed yes. country in Africa, we're, we're, we're sitting at number four. We're sitting at number four. Um, ahead of us. Where is, were we last year? Son? We were five, I think. Five. So we've gone up one. I think. I need to check that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we sort of occupy that four, four, five position. They obviously don't read Daily Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could give them some survey data yeah. if they asked. Um, but, but so, I hear of us as Botswana and a couple of the island nations. But what was interesting this year was all of the top five have actually had one area in which they have backslid significantly. And for South Africa, it's our main problem area, and it's no surprise, it's safety and the rule of law. And I think that meshes certainly with what we've been covering at the Daily Maverick. Mm. Um, and if you think of it, that that's probably it's almost definitely not going to take into account the latest crime statistics that came no, out. No, a- and so it'll, we, go, it'll be even worse. It'll be even worse next yeah. time this report runs. You exactly. know, I mean, the, the, the truer picture is, is a lot worse. So that's South Africa. More generally, there are a couple of other interesting trends. Um one is that they have one category which measures wars between countries. Um, and this year, the foundation said there are no wars between countries in Africa oh, anymore. That's great. There we go. Um, Problem solved. So, Problem solved. C- civil wars are, civil <laughs> so wars civil are different. different. So that's yeah. domestic conflict. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, people taking up arms against, against other countries, that, and I, I, you know, I can't really think of any. The only ones that spring to mind would be the, sort of African intervention in Somalia, but that has been done under a yeah. continental mandate yeah, which yeah. which changes things. They're a peacekeeping mission as opposed to a yeah. um as opposed to a war an invasion. So that I mean that that's interesting. And I think that's that's probably pretty good. You Although know? does that I mean does and that rare. include um isolated incidents, for example? Say Rwanda lobbing mortar shells into the DRC <laughs> last year, for example, or something well, like that. Did I they mean, or didn't they? Rwanda would deny that. <laughs> come on, now, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, things like I mean, if it's yeah, how, how many troops is an invasion? Or, That's a good question. Yeah, and, know, and then meeting the definition the of a war, the right? Exactly. Uh, what, what is the definition of a war? I think you have to formally declare. Yeah. I think there's paperwork involved. Um, uh, lawyers, much like anything else in yeah, life, really. Lawyers, um, accountants. Yeah. It seems like it's in someone's interest not to declare a war. If you're actually going to go to yeah. war. Just, gonna do just sort of do it. Yeah. It probably just opens you up to a whole pile of crap, right? You know, the UN and, you know, AU and all Especially sorts of these days, you know. yeah. Um, but I mean, I just, I just wonder with that, you know, talking about sort of inter, you know, cross border warfare or things like that. Yeah. I mean, you have sort of Rwanda lobbing shells across or allegedly robbing shells, lobbing shells across the, the border. Um, you know, that, that was a fairly brazen act of aggression if, if it was Rwanda. Um, which, you know, all indications indicate that it was. 
Um, if it flies well, from Rwanda and also smells that, that like wouldn't have, Rwanda, <laughs> that, that wouldn't have made it into this year's data set. Oh, is it? So it was. Because uh, it's quite. There's normally a two-year lag on these kinds of things. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, which well, is actually then yeah. in two years' then time. In two years, if it comes up, we'll uh, we'll be watching closely. <laughs> but um, some the over, overriding sort of sentiment was, you know, reading your piece was, uh, you in the top five don't think you're doing anything special. You guys are actually slipping. Yes. You're, you're you're going backwards. So don't pat yourselves on the back because you made the top five. What did what did Mo Ibrahim say? He said, "Brothers, watch it. It doesn't mean you're very good or, or you are perfect. <laughs> um, there are some slippages happening here." So yes, overall. So overall, if you look at the, the the big number and you and you look at it over the last ten years, because that's the kind of data they they collect data over ten years and they're constantly updating that data. So this 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 year's index has a full ten year data set for you to examine, and overall governance improves by about one percent, maybe over the last five to ten years for the continent for the whole. continent. Now the thing is, which uh, this sort of inside information that I happen to know that that they did not choose to publish this year, was that this is well inside the margins of error of right. the index, <laughs> um, and because the data is so poor, the margins of error are huge. Mm, yeah. So actually, a lot of these 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 numbers, uh, you know, the, the small numbers, you're mm. talking about people improving, and they've only gone up by one or two points on the index. Mm. It's meaningless, completely meaningless. Sunshine journalism, sunshine communication. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See why I wanted to be on the other side of the of the divide. Yeah. Um, Sam, the the presidential award was that supposed to be announced at the same time? Is it uh, um, ah. is it usually released at the same time as the as the index? You're bringing out all the skeletons, eh, Stilly? Um When I was there, we 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 separated it. So the the, the prize and the index were two different things, different announcements, and then. As I was leaving, they brought them together. And the reason that they brought them together was that they kept not having a prize winner. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you can't have this big event and yeah. go, yeah, yeah there's no prize. So like, at least they could say, oh, there's no prize. But we have this index which shows that governance is improving in Africa. By yeah, 1%. Yeah, yeah, look at this yeah. look at this shiny thing exactly. on the left. <laughs> um, this year, they did that for, I think, three or four years. This year, they elected to separate it again. And I'm pretty sure it's because, A, there's no... Prize win. There's not going to be another prize winner. There's no one that I can think of that'll qualify this year. And B, the index is not particularly good news either. <laughs> so it would have been a very unhappy press conference all around. So, so you think that they, well, they will split it, or they are going to split it, but they won't announce the winner again this year. I mean, that's, that's still quite strange though. I mean, just to have that, um, you know, event and announcement of nothing basically or, or, well, it's not nothing. There's no award. I mean, that well, goes well, to say a lot, really. Well, what, what the foundation says, and, and what Mo Ibrahim says to his credit, is he says it's just as important to know when there isn't a winner mm-hmm. as when there is. Because when there isn't a winner, then we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, he says he's not, he's not here for the sunshine mm-hmm. um, narrative. He's, he's here to, to try and reflect a mirror onto the state of governance in Africa. And part of that is, is putting your hand up and saying, well, there's no one that deserves this. Who was the last mm-hmm. recipient? Last recipient was, I forget his name, I think President Perez of Cape Verde. Right, and they're in the top five, aren't they? They're, they are in the top five. That was several years ago, wasn't yeah. it? That was, that was 2011. I right. Yeah. yeah, there's, there. Look, I've, I've hmm. done, I've done tests with them and I've done them subsequently where you look at other continents. Let's take Europe. It's a continent, I think, 
you know relatively well. Who would you give it to this year? So bear in mind the, the, the conditions. It has to be a president who was elected constitutionally, left office, you know, within his term limits or her term limits, you know, did everything the right way. Then they had, to, while in office, they really had to have been exceptional. We're not talking about good. We're not talking about decent. We're talking about someone who really is, is the epitome of what a good leader should be. And I've got to say, no one springs to mind in Europe. Well, I, mean, I, I can't think of anyone. Um, yeah, I mean, at, a, at a global level, you, you'd probably well, um, the um, oh, Jay Nardi wrote about him as a president he would vote for um, in was it Paraguay or something where he still drives the old. Oh, yeah, that's that old, old chap. Yeah. He drives the old. He's still he's still in. Yeah. He's still in office, so he's not yeah. eligible. Yeah. I would say. I mean. It, it's a shame the Scottish referendum went this way because I think if it swung the other way, that would that would certainly be an impressive feat of governance by by the Scots. Um, but uh, barring them, I can't think of anyone, um, at least off the top of my head. Um, cool. All right, um, John. I mean, we've touched on a couple of uh, sort of war type um, arguments and and and, and debates and uh, and issues. And uh, obviously, your background as a defence journalist has obviously come in handy. Uh, in a couple of situations, um, tell us a little bit more about what you do at the uh, at the it's the Africa Defense the African Defense, Defense Review. Review. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the African Defense Review is a my little baby that I, I sort of started as I was going into to the UK to study at King's College um, to do a war studies master to, uh, master's degree to basically or literally I should say be a master of war. And there, you know, I started this this website with um, a few colleagues of mine based in South Africa, based in Europe, based in uh, other parts of Africa, because we felt we had some pretty good contacts that we could actually um, do some analysis um, on very specific crises, um, which is where we, we sort of started doing the DRC with the Force Intervention Brigade last year in August, which is where we uh, were able to actually provide quite a, quite a lot of, I like to think, useful information. I haven't gotten accounts from uh, friends of mine who work in the United Nations in the DRC um, who actually, their friends have said, there's this great website you've got to see for, for Congolese information. It's called African Defense Review. And I, you know, I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. Um, so I've, uh, that, that's certainly my, my, my formal start, I suppose. Before that, I've always been, always been interested in war, always been fascinated with, with sort of, uh, military history and things like that. I did a brief stint at a, at a, at a local defense journal as well as a deputy editor. Um, where I worked under a very, very old uh, chap by the name of, uh, well, we called him Mr. Mack, um, who, you know, those in the defense fraternity would at least know of him. He's a sort of 86-year-old man who would run me ragged coming back and forth from Pretoria and Johannesburg. Um, so so that's where I sort of came from. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've just come back from London now, finishing my, my master's, looking mostly at South African defense policy and uh, um, how, how it can be improved, hopefully. Um, I guess if we if we're talking war and and wartime uh, issues, uh, there's probably nothing bigger on the radar than ISIS, ISIL, IS, Daesh. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. First of all, what's up with the name? Um, names. Yeah, well, the names. A... Yeah. We've got like different people choosing different variations. Um, have they undergone a brand, you know, brand redesign, repositioning themselves? Um, what's up with that? I think that's what's, what's very interesting about ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, ISIS, um, IS, Islamic State, is that they are somewhat conscious of their brand, which is why, for example, Daesh, which is the Arabic name, 
um, for their organization is, is somewhat discouraged, at least by, by, by the terrorists themselves, simply because it's, apparently it's very similar to an Arabic uh, translation of being trampled upon, which I can understand if you want to. That sound apt, though. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, nowadays it's a pretty good, mm. it's a pretty good term for them. But, uh, the, the other names, um, ISIL, um, is the Islamic State in Levant, um, originates, if I remember correctly, and Simon, please correct me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong here, is, uh, originates from Iraq, um, from, from their, their sort of original splitting, as I understand it, from, um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq when they were sort of under the, 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 the yoke of, uh, al-Zakawi before he was killed. Um, <clears throat> so, but what you need to understand is, for the most part, these names all translate to the same thing. Um, Islamic State generally prefer to be referred to as Islamic State because then it, it doesn't confine themselves to a border. Um, it, it, it sort of implies a, a broader regional uh, control, which, which you know, there's, there's an argument to be made that maybe that's exactly what they're doing right now. And, and that obviously ties in with the declaration of the caliphate. The, you know, yes, exactly. exactly. The, 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 those came, they changed their name from, from ISIS-ISIL. ISIS and ISIL mean exactly the same thing. Yeah. They're just two different English translations. Um, either Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant or Islamic State in Iraq and the Shams, which is, um, mm. the Arabic word for that kind of, for that region. So they've changed their name to the Islamic State, which is quite an amazing claim to make, you know. Mm. They're not, they're not describing a geographical territory. They are, they are sort of this, this amorphous. They're describing um, a historical trans- empire that yeah, used to exactly. exist. Yeah. Um, and, uh, coupling that with, with this idea of the caliphate and the caliphate, by declaring a caliphate, what you are doing is you are telling all Muslims that you, you are, they are now subservient to you. But this caliphate mm. has been established and you now need to, you know, um, give your, uh, be submissive towards the caliph himself, which the is. The equivalent of your, your Middle Eastern Vatican is now up for shop. Um, yes, old Baghdad kind of like a second, home. a second coming kind of, uh, you know, uh, th- there's a new leader in town kind of thing, and then everyone must buy. There down, is, and the interesting know. thing is, I mean, there is already, I mean, there, there are lots of echoes of, of the caliphate already in the Middle East. The, the ruling family in Bahrain are the Khalifas, um, and Khalifa is the Arabic for, for caliphate. Um, one of the titles of the Saudi king is um, caliph. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, already you have this uh, contestation. Mm-hmm. That's perhaps why the Saudis are so worried, and they're they're contributing to the, yeah, uh, absolutely, to, the, to the, the U.S. forces that are bombing the Islamic State because they're they're really worried that that actually the, this idea of a caliphate, declaring it, it, you know, it's not really about the world's Muslims, although that that would be the end goal. But it's about, um, it's about antagonizing the other entities that lay claim to. Mm. Leading the Muslim world. And in particular, mm. those are Al-Qaeda. Um, and Al-Qaeda has long dreamed of establishing its own caliphate. That was it, always it its never, original plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's never had the territory. It's never had the political power to do so. And maybe it's never had the balls to do so. Um, what we're seeing, you know, the Islamic State is just going ahead and doing it. And that's what, that's part of the Islamic State's attraction to many young jihadis and why they are suddenly attracting all these Africans and Europeans, Central Asians, etc., to their ranks. Mm. The other per- person that is, that is threatened by this is Saudi, because Saudi is the sort of official leader of the, the Muslim world. Saudi, of course, the, the two holy cities, Mecca and Medina, are in Saudi, and the, the Saudi king is, is the official custodian of the two holy cities 
He's not doing a great job, to be honest. Um, lots of reports no. of, of the, the incredible development around Mecca. You know, the, these ancient tombs being uh, destroyed to make way for a shiny plastic skyscraper. Can you imagine if shopping malls? build a condo next to the waiting yeah. wall or something <laughs> yeah, like exactly. that? So it would be, shopping uh, malls with the uh, indoor skiing yeah, slopes. Exactly. Ski slopes right? exactly. That's what. That's really what Muhammad would have wanted. Mm-hmm. At least that's the, the Saudi interpretation. I'm just reading here that the Levant region includes Jordan, Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, uh, parts of southern Turkey and Cyprus. So I'm just sending off a mail to my family to tell them to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much to, it. Yeah, to pack up and... Yeah, just watch out yeah. for a couple of uh, black clothed guys. <laughs> <laughs> So in robe, flowing robes, run, run. South Africa is safer after all. That's the, that's the message. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so where did these guys come from? So we know they broke out of Al-Qaeda, basically, now making Al-Qaeda look like a bunch of sissies, mm. essentially. Yeah. Although they, uh, ironically, I mean, they, Al-Qaeda tended to distance themselves from the, the, mm. the, the ISIL group before there was this giant split, simply mm. because their tactics were considered far too barbaric and far too violent for Al-Qaeda's uh, taste. Because bear in mind, Al-Qaeda is, they, they, they get it. They understand global media, mm-hmm. uh, particularly after the initial beheadings of Daniel Pearl and, and things like that, you know, talking many, many years back now. Um, Al-Qaeda understood how to manage its popularity as a global terrorist brand, I, I dare say. Um, whereas ISIL, as you say, have got the balls to simply say, fuck it, we're just going to, we're just going to behead, chop heads mm-hmm. off. You know, if you're not Sunni, that's a tough, you, you, you're going to die. And I think with Al-Qaeda, um, they, they simply almost sort of uh, held ISIL um, under its sort of control through Zarqawi before he, before he was knocked off. Zarqawi was the, the chap. He kind of looked like a ninja with a machine gun, <laughs> um, a couple of uh, uh, sort of propaganda videos of him running around it's Iraq. Crazy bastard. Yeah, he was, he was a madman, yeah. absolutely crazy. Osama bin Laden apparently told him to like chill out a bit because he was being a little <laughs> crazy in, in Iraq. Um, they didn't uh, like each other at all. No, no, um, Zarqawi and Bin Laden. Um, very, <clears throat> a very um, difficult relationship there. Zarqawi spearheaded the whole resistance to the American occupation of Iraq. All those IEDs mm-hmm. and um, car bombs <clears throat> and suicide attacks. I mean, there, there was that space in, in sort of 06, 07, 08 in Iraq where it was just, it was so incredibly bloody. Mm. And that was Zarqawi. The Hurt Locker. Um, the Hurt Locker, exactly. It was that phase. It was Zarqawi and, and his successes, but, but he really laid the blueprint. Then what the Americans did, and, and this was brilliant, was they managed to sort of co-opt a, a bunch of other Sunni militant groups um, into a kind of Surge. coalition called <laughs> The Awakening. Yeah. Um, and... It, it was, you know, they, they talk about the surge, and, and that was the U.S. military component, mm. and and that. But it incorporated know, the whole awakening exactly. as well, yeah. Um, but it was really, it it really was that that using, it was using Sunni groups against another Sunni group that that was where it was effective mm. because they could reach places that American troops simply could not go. They understood mm. how things worked in a way that the Americans simply mm. couldn't, and 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 that really sort of put the lid on the on on Zarqawi's mm. group. And then the Americans left, and then Syria happened. And Syria was really the, the, the sort of kick-starting factor to get it all going again, because what happened was this Iraqi group, an offshoot of Al-Qaeda, said, look, we should, we should, we should get involved in Syria. This is, this is ripe territory yeah. for us. There's, you know? there's a battle right here. Exactly. Um, and, and initially, if you remember, it was, Syria was part of the Arab Spring. It was a, a pro-democracy movement. It was a very secular opposition they wanted to bring in democratic values 
And slowly that, that opposition got kind of subverted. It, it still exists, but it's much less powerful because the powerful yeah. groups in um, Syria now, the opposition groups, are the, the, the Islamist groups. Um, what happened, though, was that ISIS, as it, well, God, who knows what it was then? ISIS, oh. Islamic State of Iraq is what yeah. it was then, sent um, one of their members to set up a group called Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Nusra Front. Mm. And they were, you know, they were the, the their first representatives, and they did a great job, and 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 they they got got very powerful very quickly. Um, and then the guy who was sent to lead the Nostra Front thought, "Hey, I'm not sure I want to take orders from from these guys in Iraq anymore. I'm kind of going to go it alone." Things are going alright in Syria. Yeah, exactly. Why not? You know. <laughs> um. So so then the guys in Iraq said, "Okay, well, we're going to forget about you, and we're going to start up again." And they sent another bunch of guys over to start the Islamic State um, in Iraq and Syria. And that was, that was the real genesis of ISIS as we know it today. Um, and then there was this war between Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS. Um, so these two Islamist groups started by the same people, basically, were now fighting amongst themselves and fighting the Syrian government at the same time. I mean, it really is quite a, a military like, feat. It's a giant hot mess, I believe, is the, uh, is the term I used to call it. I mean, even before IS came onto the radar, Syria was not a great place in terms of its mm. civil war. It it was just a giant chaotic mess, and there was no. Um, it was the definition of a, a sort of strategic quagmire for mm. for everybody involved, which is probably why until now America had wouldn't get involved, even when there was you know this explicit mm. exposure of chemical weapons being used by the Syrian Syrian government, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think now it's just, it, it became this. Incredibly complicated mess. You had incredibly open and porous borders by virtue of the fact that the Syrian government simply couldn't control its own state, which meant you could just have more and more terrorist groups and, and sort of rebel movements popping up, moving in, jihadists coming across the border constantly. Um, and, and that creates or just exacerbates the problem even more, um, which is which is kind of well, or at least a large part of how, how this whole thing uh, do we know? Do we know how big such a the, the the force of the Islamic State is? The people actually, the fighters involved. I mean, the, I mean, mm. there seem to be a, uh, seems to be a huge discrepancy in the number of people. Everything, anything from like twenty thousand to a hundred thousand mm. armed people. The um, last estimate I heard was uh, about thirty thousand um, actual people with machine guns mm-hmm. and assault rifles, mm-hmm. kinds of uh, terrorists running around. And uh, you know, and it's quite scary to think. So I was reading up about um, <clears throat> Tikrit. Um, which were which fell to IS uh, or ISIS um, about four months ago, and it's not a big city, not not a big stronghold, and the Iraqi army was sent in to recapture Tikrit, and with with tanks and helicopters and all the you know fancy military hardware that hundred billion dollars <laughs> of uh, funding over the last ten years can buy you, mm. and they still haven't managed to reclaim this little town well, which kind of shows you you know what a what you're up against and b maybe the incompetency of the iraqi army at the moment there's definitely an element of incompetence but we can't underestimate is i mean the, the resources they now have much of it captured from the iraqi army mm-hmm. are, are huge that they're, they're apparently they've got dozens of helicopters um they, they have something like fifty thousand rounds of, of artillery shells or something uh, yeah, um, they've also. Tanks, I heard APCs, this recently. Tanks, APCs, everything. Yeah. Um, everything they fighter need. Jets. Well, whether or not they know how to fly no, and maintain either. them is. Uh, well, interestingly, um, um, I heard they didn't come from the Iraqi army. They all right. Came from Libya. 
Interesting. Because they've done some slightly. Haven't they? They've seen sure how that works. Well, there are arms shipments coming in and out of, uh, Mm. I think it's Misrata, which uh, is, if I, and I mean, you've you've been following Mm. Libya far more closely than me. That's where there's been a lot of unrest in and around the port area there by a rogue general fighting against these arms shipments coming in and out of Libya. So it's, uh, I can certainly believe it. Mm. Um, Simon, haven't they sent uh, guys over (laughs) there to go and support some of the militia in Libya? Yes. Um, This was in late June. Late June, the, the sort of head honchos of the Islamic State got together and said, look, we see these, uh, there's an Islamist group fighting in Libya. We, we should help them. So they sent back their, you know, anywhere between 500 and 1,000 Libyan fighters who were in Iraq and Syria fighting for the Islamic State. They rounded them up and said, look, you guys are going to go home and you're going to join the ranks of Ansar al-Sharia who are fighting in and around Benghazi, which is the, the main eastern port city. Mm. And uh, you're going to help them. And they said, okay, they went. And within the matter, within, within the space of two weeks, Benga, most of Benghazi had fallen to Ansar al-Sharia, and Ansar al-Sharia had declared Benghazi to be an Islamic emirate. Mm-hmm. Now, this is quite an astonishing show of strength that, mm-hmm. that you know, one decision made in some cave in Iraq mm-hmm. can can cause territory to fall in Libya, however many thousands. Of and they probably picked up is. a couple of fighter planes there for their efforts as well. <laughs> You'd think so. Um, the age of globalized terrorism, truly um, terrifying, I think. <laughs> so now these guys are well-funded. They, they're self-funded, funding at the moment. They don't need to rely on external uh, parties to fund. They've got something like $2 billion in the bank. I don't know which bank. It's, they... it's an estimated value of $2 billion. Yeah. No one knows how much of that is liquid. Um, yeah. A lot of that is is like military assets. Mm-hmm. Um that contribute to that valuation. But they still have lots of money. Yeah, lots of money. I mean, mm. I think something like $8 million a month comes in from uh, the sale of um, uh, black market oil. $3 million a day. Steve. A day. Wow. I think maybe she's right. probably looking at the wrong number, the yeah. profit <laughs> number, um, which which is crazy as well as um, ransom money. Uh, there's ransom mm. money coming in. And something which was quite interesting to see is they now control 40% of the wheat production in Iraq. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Big yeah, thing. and which means that there's there's a, the stronghold or the grip that they have of the country is just getting bigger and bigger. I mean, they're starting to control the food supply uh, and then things like cement factories and stuff. So they're going in and also forcing things like pr- people to pay protection tax and mm. the, the normal sort of uh, shaking up of the of the public that uh, mm. you know, these kinds of organizations well, do. Well, they've, they've been very careful. Um, so if you contrast, contrast the Islamic State's occupation with America's occupation of Iraq. Now, America went in and basically decimated um, the civil service, the army, the disband you know, the, army, disband the um, government. The government. Disband basically, the there, there was nothing left. Yeah. Um, you know, you had people. I remember we read a great book of the Green Zone, I think it was called, and, and you had people, you know, young corporals from Missouri, age twenty-two, being flown in to to um, create a new road law for Iraq because they couldn't find the old <laughs> one. Um, crazy things like this. What? the Islamic State has done so well is they've moved in very carefully. They have taken care to protect any kinds of assets. So, you know, the fields, the power stations, the dams, mm-hmm. um, and to keep them running. So, the And they're also functioning courts of law, uh, yes. theoretically. You know, Sharia courts and things like that are operating within their, you know, in Raqqa, I think specifically they have yeah, there is a, a semblance of civil society mm. going on, albeit the the the, the ISIS way. I and it's one of those questions. It's a pretty hardline government, but mm. would you prefer a hardline government to no government at all? Which is kind of mm. what a lot of these people were facing otherwise. 
Um, so the question then moves on, how do you fight something like ISIS? You know, if you look at, um, you know, the, the main opposition or the adversaries that they face, Syria, USA, and obviously Iran who are supporting the Iraqi government, mm. it's not likely you're going to get a coalition out of those three quite soon. That's going to be an effective coalition where there will be goodwill and, uh, and, and, uh, and work, you know, good working relationship between the three of them. So, you know, how do you, how do you fight? How do you combat something like ISIS now that is getting stronger and stronger by the day well, and claiming more and more territory? I mean, you've, you've just, by, by talking about all these assets and these, these, these sort of, um, structures that IS has actually started establishing, therein lies the key to their defeat, I would mm-hmm. say. I'm going to put on my sort of master of war hat now and start, you know, I'm not going to draw diagrams or anything like that. But the more territory and the more assets they control, the more visible they become to U.S. Air Forces, to Iraqi ground forces who are now supported by um, by, by the USA. And uh, to an extent, there are some Arab coalition forces also getting on board. But, I mean, you're right. It is certainly divided. I mean, it's very difficult in the best of days to get a, you know, to get a, a, a Sunni government to ally with the Shia government to fight a Sunni uh, terrorist group, for example. But the more tanks and the larger formations um, that IS move in and the more jihadists who flow in, um, you, the more targets, quite frankly, there are for U.S. Air Force planners to actually um, allocate and designate and, you know, uh, uh, destroy. And I think uh, I actually wrote about it today in today's first thing is talking about how um, Islamic State is now adapting its tactics. They're starting to spread out. They're starting to abandon their heavy weapons. And that shows, okay, it's a remarkable adaptability, but, you know, obviously it's, it's an insurgency for all intents and purposes. They're going to adapt. It's this organic mess that the Americans have to try and uh, somehow deprive of its operational environment. What you can do is by forcing them to spread out, you're eliminating their offensive capability, which means the next time they come at something like Mosul Dam, for example, or their next target, they're going to come in far fewer numbers and in far greater strength with far less sophisticated uh, uh, military mm-hmm. tactics, which then potentially, and I cannot stress potentially enough, um, could enable the Iraqi forces allied with uh, the, the USA, I'm talking in the Iraq context here specifically, it could allow them to actually repel the, these attacks, particularly, the, I mean, the Kurds as well. I, I have full confidence in their ability to, to protect their homeland, as it were. Um, and I think in, in Syria, you might see a similar kind of scenario where you have um, more and more obvious targets being eliminated and you start getting this diffuse mass, um, which does, to an extent, I would say, play into the, the hands of of, of, of the, the USA and the counter-terror forces simply because it's a lot harder to run a civil society when you can't operate your security forces in there and thus maintain control of your city. You mentioned uh, America as part of the counter-terrorism uh, coalition and it's staggering to think that Barack Obama is now the fourth consecutive president to authorize bombing of Iraqi mm. targets. Um, it's almost like a tradition now. Yeah. Welcome to the presidency. Here's your airstrike coordinates. And, and given that, you know, at the start of all, in, you know, in, in, at the start of his, uh, tenure or in the build up to the start of his tenure, you know, his intentions were to decrease American presence, uh, in, in the Middle East. And, you know, we're now going full circle and, you know. We're leaving Iraq. We're leaving Afghanistan. We're going to disengage. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's astonishing that the lessons haven't been learned though. 
Um, the news came in yesterday that Jabhat al-Nusra, the Nusra Front, so these were the, the, the enemies of Islamic State, that, that the fighting between them was such a problem they had to, they had to call in al-Qaeda to adjudicate. <laughs> this is how bad it got. You know you're in trouble when al-Qaeda <laughs> yeah, yeah, has to yeah, mediate is your referee. Uh, good grief. Nusra Front. Um, That's like getting your brother the pyrotechnic <laughs> to help out with the, the, the cooking for dinner. That's yeah, just ridiculous. Exactly. But now Nusra Front, because of the American bombings, is is going back in with with the Islamic State. They're saying we we you know we, we can't afford to maintain these ideological differences in the face of an American onslaught. Mm. That worries me. It worries me greatly because the only way you're going to really bring down the Islamic State is from within. Is to, is to have groups that, that that can that have the legitimacy to to tackle the Islamic State that have that can provide a genuine alternative and. And, and on this front, even though, you know, this is the thing, this is where you get into shades of relativity, you know, <laughs> where, where you'd prefer having Al-Qaeda wandering around in, in the Islamic State. Like the but, devil you know, then the devil you don't. You know, the, the clue in how to defeat ISIS comes in, in the surge and, and the mm. awakening. Um, it's, it's using Sunni militant groups against another Sunni militant group, which is essentially what the Islamic State is. Instead, what what's happening now is by bringing by America bombing and bringing in I mean these ridiculous partners, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> like and they they, they 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 you know they're like oh yeah the Arabs are with us they're like but the Arabs are the problem Saudi Arabia <laughs> is the enemy it's enemy number one yeah you know if you were to go to Baghdadi today and you said you know could I could could do you want to assassinate Barack Obama or the Saudi King he'd choose the Saudi King <laughs> now. You know, it just it reveals this fundamental misunderstanding of, of how things work. It's it's what America is doing now is a PR battle. They well, have I, to I disagree something. with you on that. I would say there's actually there, there there is something of a moral obligation going on here, where where the America must pursue its foreign policy, and its foreign policy is democracy and prevention of human rights, along with uh, you know key allies. Um, I agree 100% on the Arab you know sort of allies being more of a problem than a solution. Um, that said, I, I don't know what else America can do. And I think this, this ties in very firmly with its, its global whack-a-mole counter-terror terror strategy that it has adopted these days, which is it's, it's really the only thing it can do simply because the world is sick of America getting involved on the ground at any rate in, in, in the world's wars. But at the same time, and it, you know, we as the media are particularly guilty of this, when journalists were getting their heads chopped off two months ago, people were saying somebody should do something about this. Somebody, this this is this is terrible. This is a global threat. We should do something. Um, Which is exactly and, what the Islamic State wanted. It's it's so incredibly oh, obvious. Um, <laughs> they just knock off, you know, uh, cut a foreigner's heads or head off, and suddenly foreign journalist, a, a giant, you know, violent reaction. Um, and, and they knew this was coming. So you got to ask yourself, did they want it to come? Is this playing into their hands? And I think it is. And I don't buy your democracy argument, John. That's bullshit. Um, if, they, I, if they were, I, no, no, no. I really believe there is, really? there is some well, why, element of, well, of neoliberalism why, going on here. Why is one of America's key allies, Saudi Arabia, which is the Islamic State? I'm not saying it's entirely pro-democracy. Don't get me wrong. I'm no, not. I'm what not I'm like saying is, is the for me, there is no difference here, between Saudi Arabia yeah. and the Islamic State. For you me okay so if 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 that's your you know if you're going in for on grounds of democracy human rights freedom of religion or whatever the fuck um <laughs> then th- then it, it doesn't make any sense to ally with 
with one of the biggest abusers of all those things. Well, yeah, because it's not like uh, um, the Saudis aren't beheading people anyway. Exactly. Um, Certainly. But at the same yeah. time, Saudi citizens can pay tax. They can mm-hmm. travel outside of their borders. And I do think you need to draw a line where you, you have rampant. Saudi men, obvious, Saudi men can. Saudi men can, can leave the bo- uh, Yeah. The Saudi women can do. Okay. So half of Saudi Arabia <laughs> yeah. can leave, which is, that's, that's a hell of a lot more than, than Syria. But the, the bottom line is here, there is something of a moral imperative here that needs to be enforced. And whether it's America, whether it's Saudi Arabia, I, I honestly don't give a shit. Whoever gets involved there needs to get involved and it needs to be. Sometimes some it is braver. Of, sometimes it's braver to do nothing. Uh, wh- how do you think that would play out? How I think that would play out is I think IS would overstretch themselves. They take a lot of territory very quickly. And you know what? If they want to set up an Islamic state, no, but then you're saying okay. you're gonna you're gonna end up with a civil war again, but this time not in Syria. You're gonna have Syria and the Iraq. Region. You're gonna have an explosion of the region again, um, and I, I don't think that's a, a particularly good long-term solution. You know, I'm not saying whack-a-mole is a particularly good no. long-term solution either, but I do think it's I a think, better solution than simply letting the fire solution. burn. You know, because I don't think it's I don't think the fire will burn out, as it were. I don't think it's going to simply. Brooks, Brooks Spector um, had a great piece. Yesterday, I think, um, proposing something completely different, and as as he would, as he would, <laughs> and I got to say, it, it it weirdly makes a lot of sense to me. Um, he said, um, in the Iraq War, they 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 did the calculations, and it cost something in the region of thirty million dollars to to kill every Viet Cong, Viet, or whichever Viet it was, Viet Minh soldier that that they killed. Viet Cong too. Was it Viet yeah. Cong? I get confused. Um, sorry, how much? Discrimination was like 30 million dollars per soldier. Per soldier. Okay. Because the, the, yeah, the, war, mean, the war is so expensive. expensive. Yeah. Toilet um, paper and food and ammunition and water. And then probably and the so, so what Brooks said was, was fuck it. Um, take that money. Take that money and say to all the Vietnamese who want to, mm. say, well, come. You know, say to all the people that are currently fleeing Islamic State territory, and you know what? They are being allowed to leave. Um, people are generally being allowed to leave. Mm. Um, particularly Christians. There's no problem with Christians leaving. Um, it's even a Christian part of the court, actually, in, in Raqqa. I didn't yeah. know that. It's empty, um, but it's extensively <laughs> functional. Um, you know, so basically, give the refugees somewhere to go. Take that $30 million, and I imagine it would be even more these mm. days. Um, Build them a house in America. Put it out with flat screens. See, now that's that's a great idea. But now, if that happened uh, in the Middle East, for example, it, what happens next? I would want that. I want thirty million. Yeah. I want to be able to yeah. to do that. I'm going to start my own insurgency and get thirty million. It, it just incentivizes the spill-on effect. Which Maybe I we don't could think dress is. up the EFF to kind of give us a <laughs> re- rebrand the EFF, and uh, and we could get thirty million dollars. Um, guys, it's been. An incredible conversation to have you guys both here. Uh, I love the argy-bargy at the end there. We need definitely need more of that. All we need to conclude is that Simon's yeah, wrong. And too I'm many, right. <laughs> too many damn wrong. Daily Mavericks will think alike. I love it. Um, that's been the Daily Maverick Show. I've been with Simon Allison and John Stupod. Guys, thank you so much for being in studio with me. Um, if you didn't catch us uh, live, you probably wouldn't be listening to this right now, but uh, <laughs> catch the podcast on Daily Maverick or Cliff Central. Uh, it'll be up uh, this afternoon, Tuesday, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.